Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon is Jude 1, 24 through 25. The word of God speaks to us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his holy glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of God to us. Thank you so much. Father, you allowed us to sing today and the songs that you've given us, you allowed us to sing that you have no rival, that you have no equal. There's no one like you. And we just want to agree in this room that that's true. There's no one like our God. There's no one that loves like you. There's no one that's faithful like you. There's no one that's true like you. There's no one that can hold us in our suffering like you. There's no one who's honest like you. There's no one who's strong like you. And so as we approach your word today, God, would, would your word come to us? Would we have an encounter with your word where we would agree even in Holy Scripture, you have no rival, you have no equal, that this word stands over every other word, that this word forms us, shapes us, speaks to us, names us. And so, Holy Spirit, would you attend us this next 30 minutes? Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to be stirred with affection for you and your kingdom. And we offer this prayer in the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ, through, who through we get to pray this prayer. Amen. Amen. Well, this last Tuesday here, we, we, every Tuesday is sort of team training day. We do meetings and uh, sort of a, a death by meetings kind of a day uh, around, around, these, around these parts on Tuesdays. And we had a meeting on Tuesday about meetings. Sounds riveting, doesn't it? A meeting about meetings. So for the various people on our, on our staff that lead teams and host meetings and that kind of thing. It was a meeting about how to host a meeting, about how to prepare for a meeting, about how to execute a meeting, a meeting about meetings. And that meeting started with kind of an obvious statement that I want to begin my sermon with today. Hey, no one likes a bad meeting. Can I get an amen? And you're thinking, that must have been a really bad meeting. It was helpful. No one likes a bad meeting. Hey, hey, no one likes a meeting that could have lasted 15 minutes and went an hour. <laughs> Just coming with fire today. No one likes a meeting that could have lasted 30 minutes but lasts two hours. Jude packs a punch in this little book. It's 461 words. It's the fifth shortest book in all of Scripture. Jude wrote this book to be read in a single meeting. This would have been the sermon that day as maybe an early church pastor would have stood up before the congregation. We're going to read this letter in this one meeting from the Apostle Jude. But we've taken four Sundays to study it, <laughs> right? And it's not that we're inefficient in our Sunday meetings. Maybe you would want to argue that. But it's, I would argue that it's not that we're inefficient in our Sunday meetings, that what was written to be read once, we've studied over four weeks. 
It's that what Jude is doing here is so sophisticated by the Holy Spirit that it's, we're a bit slow to catch up with all that he's doing. We need a remedial course. And even after four weeks, here's what's interesting. After four weeks, I think that you would agree that we still haven't plumbed the depths of this sub-500 letter letter. We haven't plumbed the depths of it. Like the, the, What's happening here in the book of Jude is actually shorter than many blog posts that you'll give yourself to. And to this point in the book, Jude has varied the tone. He's varied the pitch of voice that he's spoken with. He begins the book with this really tender greeting. He's writing to the church, and he says, I want mercy and love and grace to be multiplied to you. What an amazing greeting. I want the good things of God in his heart to be multiplied to you. And then he moves from that tender greeting, and he starts to state his intentions pretty strongly in verse 3. He presses the gas pedal a bit, and he says, what I'm going to do in this letter is I'm actually going to contend for the faith once for all given to the saints. And the word contend there is actually the word fight. Like I'm going to fight for the faith that we hold true to it, that we are faithful to it, that we actually understand what it is and what's at stake. So he moves from tender greeting to stating intentions with pretty firm voice. And he holds the firm voice through the bulk of the book. And what he does is he warns us against the dangers of false teaching. That's why we're contending for the faith. Let's know what's true so that we can sniff out what's not. And he warns us not just against false teachers, but he warns us about how susceptible we are to be pulled down by them. There's a lot at stake here. But then he moves from the firm voice, again, to soften at the passage we looked at last week. And he has this descent. He lets off the gas pedal a bit. And he says, hey, and also I want you to know there's mercy for doubters in verse 23. He says, Has, have mercy on those who doubt. And so if you're here today, not sure if any of this is even true or real, wondering if this is all just a bunch of made-up stuff, skeptical about the claims of Jesus, the Bible actually names you in a pretty precious category, and it's not one of judgment, it's one of mercy. <laughs> have mercy on those who doubt. It's an amazing word. And all of what's happening in the varied tone and pitch of Jude in these 25 verses, all of that leads to what we're doing here today in these final two verses, to a shout and to a triumph at the end of this book. If this little letter were a piece of music, there would have been sort of an ebb and a flow all along, but in these final two verses, it's by definition a crescendo. The drums are picking up a bit. The cymbals are coming in. There's a power chord being played somewhere, right? This is by definition a crescendo. Everything is building to this point. If you have an open Bible, I want you to notice a subheading before verse 24. Subheadings aren't like inspired scripture. They're just there to let you know what you're about to read. But this subheading is really important. The subheading of verse 24 says doxology. Doxology is a word it comes from two Greek words, doxa, glory, logos, word. What we're about to experience in these last two verses is a glory word. It's an expression of praise. It's coming forward as the crescendo of everything that's been happening in this tiny little letter. And so that's going to actually form our three turns today as we study it. The first is this, glory to who? If this is a glory word, if this is a doxology, glory to who? Second, why glory? And then lastly, the ministry of joy. The ministry 
of joy. So pick up with me. Glory to who? Verse 24, the first three words. He says this, now to him. Now to him. So after all the warning of this book, after all the teaching of what he's doing here, he now explodes with these first three words, now to him. What's happening here is that Jude lets us know in verse 3 when he starts this letter that what he really wanted to write about was the experience of our common salvation. He wanted to sort of set the table, light the candles, start the music, and have a party about the love of God and his saving work to us. But he says there, I was eager to write to you about the love of God, but there were some more impressing issues I had to get to. So he handles those. And it's as though he was so pregnant with his desire to actually celebrate the love of God, he's like, business done, now to him. Now to him. You say, him who? Him who? To him who, though Jude was by family brother of Jesus, he sees Jesus as one not even worthy to name as his own brother, but instead his servant, to that Jesus Christ. In verse 4, to him who, he says, is our only master and Lord. To him who made creation stand by his very word. To him who saved the Israelites from the Egyptians. And in case you thought that that was just the Old Testament God, in verse 5, Jude tells us it was actually Jesus that delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. Jesus through all time. To him who the book of Job tells us, when thunder and lightning make their noise, it comes at the command of Jesus. Glory to who? To him who spoke by the prophets of old and to the one who has kept every single one of his promises. To him who hung the stars and yet was born by the Virgin Mary. To him who takes naps in sea-tossed boats because he knows the wind and the waves obey him, yet the same one who sweat drops of blood when he was entering into the storm of judgment for our sins at the cross. To him who set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, knowing that going there would mean suffering, but he did so to free us from our sins by his blood. That's the one who gets this glory word. Verse 25, Jude finishes the sentence. Now to him, 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. He says, amen, may it be so. This glory word goes to the only God, the only Savior, See, the whole point of this book is to bring us back to, he says, the faith once for all given to the saints. This is not something that we're making up. This is not a faith of our own making. This isn't a cleverly crafted myth to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. This isn't some sort of spiritual therapy. This isn't sort of a glory word to one God among many other gods or a God you could possibly adopt because he fits more of your preferences. This is a glory word to the only God. There's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus, God's Son, as delivered to us in Holy Scripture. And he says to that one, be all the glory, be all the majesty, be all the dominion, and be all the authority, because he's the only one who can handle those things with benevolent heart. He gets the glory word.
Now the second turn today. Why glory? Why glory? Right, it's kind of a silly question because when you survey who he is, you're like, well, the answer's sort of clear because he deserves it. He deserves the glory. Like, he's worth the praise. But what's interesting about this passage is it doesn't just tell us who he is. It tells us what he's like and what he does. Pick up in 24. This is why we're giving him glory. Because he's able. Man, there is a feast in every line of this doxology, every word. You could just sort of tee off on a sermon to him who is able, but he goes on to say what he's able to do. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And so we'll tease this apart. The first promise, the reason why he gets glory is because he's able to keep you from stumbling. Can you hold this with me? He's able to keep you from stumbling, promise. This isn't a negotiable word. This isn't a debatable word. This isn't like, I wonder if it's actually true. Promise. Keep you from stumbling. Now, here's what's amazing about this promise. Doesn't this promise come in the face of the great fear of every honest Christian? The great fear of every honest Christian is, will I make it to the end? Will I, will I make it to the end? Here's actually the paradox of the Christian life. The paradox of the Christian life is this. You don't, the more you get to know yourself and the more you get to know God, it's not like you become less desperate over time. Like you would think somehow that like someday I'm going to graduate from being needy. I'm going to graduate someday from needing help. I'm going to graduate someday from being such an idiot on the inside. The interesting thing about the Christian life is that the more you get to know yourself, you see your track record. And it's like, I can try to project like filters, but I know what's down here. And the more you get to know God, it's not like, you know what, we actually are buddies after all. You're like, this is God. I have no business being around him as I get to know myself. The interesting thing about the Christian life is the more you get to know yourself, you become more desperate, not less. And so isn't this an interesting tension? He's able to keep us from stumbling, yet the common experience of the Christian is constant stumbling. Am I the only one? He's able to keep us from stumbling, promise, glory word, yet my constant experience in the Christian of life is stumbling. So how do I reconcile this? Either this promise isn't true, because I'm always stumbling, or it is true, but I'm so busted it's not true for me because I'm not as good of a Christian as I'd like to think I am, or maybe third, there's actually something deeper going on here. How do we deal with this? The most repeated verb in this book is the verb to keep. So in verse 1, we're told that we're kept for Jesus Christ. We're kept. God's doing something for us. He's keeping us for his son. And then in verse 21, we're told, you are responsible to keep yourself in the love of God. So we're kept for Jesus, but now you're being held accountable to keep yourself in the love of God. And now in verse 24, we're told that God is able to keep us from stumbling. So which is it? 
Is God keeping us? Do we keep ourselves? There's this sort of weaving together of this keeping work. But notice, God's keeping work is mentioned twice. Our keeping work is mentioned once. There's something of this ratio that help us understand. You see, the Christian life is not just like, you know what I needed? I needed just a boost from God. If I could just get like a little injection of spirituality, I would just be fine and I could take it from here. The Christian life isn't getting a boost from God, but mostly your effort to keep yourself. And it's true that the Christian life is not this weird popular phrase, let go and let God. What does that even mean? Let go and let God do what? Such a bizarre phrase. We throw it around. But that's, not the, that's actually not in the Bible, as though there's no effort on our behalf. I'm just letting God. You see, what Jude's trying to tell us here with this ministry of keeping, God's keeping, our keeping, is that we're not passive bystanders, as though, well, just God's keeping me. And it's also true that we're not solo actors. I've got to keep myself or else. This same tension actually shows up in the book of Philippians. And we'll let that sort of interpret what's happening here in Jude. In Philippians 2, verse 12, the scripture says this, Christian, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's your job. God's given you grace. God's given you a spirit. God's given you the promises of his son. And so I want you to work that out in your life. Obedience to Jesus, submission to God, yielding to his authority. Work out your salvation and recognize it's not just your homeboy that saved you. This is God Almighty, so do so with fear and trembling. So you go, okay, I've got a lot of work to do. But notice verse 12 is followed by verse 13. So you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but remember, it's God who works in you both to will, to desire, to want to, and to work, to follow through on his good pleasure. You see how the keeping work, you're being kept for Jesus. Keep yourself in love of God. He's able to keep you from stumbling. It's not a which is it. Work out your salvation, but it's God who works in you, both to desire and to do his good pleasure. Pastor John Piper has this quote on this. It's really, really helpful in the Christian life. He says, I want you to work and I want you to will, desire to kill your sin. But do it with fear and trembling. Why? Because God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, redeemer, justifier, sustainer, father, lover, he's actually so close to you that your working and willing is his working and willing. He's suggesting, where do you think your ability to work and to will came from? Your working and willing to stay faithful and to fight sin in the Christian life is actually his working and his willing. He's that close. Tremble at this breathtaking thought. God Almighty is in you. God is the one in you willing. God is the one in you working. So your continuous, sustained, strenuous effort, because it's hard at times, isn't it? Your effort is not only being carried out in the very presence of an all-holy God, but it is the very continuous, sustained, strenuous effort of God himself. You're not waiting for a miracle, let go and let God. You're not waiting for a miracle in the Christian life. You're acting a miracle, faithfulness to God, because your action is God's action in fighting your sin. Your willing is God's willing. 
You're being kept for Jesus. That's secure. Keep yourself in the love of God. He's able to keep you from stumbling. So the Christian life is not a matter of how caught up you can get on having a grip on God. That's not the Christian life. Your assurance in the Christian life and mine is God's grip on us. And the fact that he never, he never loses hold. And so when he says he's able to keep you from stumbling, this isn't a promise that you won't ever stumble. But this is a promise, to put it in layman's terms, that he will get you to the end. This is God shouting through the apostle Jude at the end of this book, I will get you home. Your continuous, sustained, strenuous effort is not in vain. I will get you home. I will. I'm able to keep you from stumbling. It's not that you won't ever stumble, but that he will get you home. The Christian life is grace in the beginning. God's, you didn't get yourself here. God's grace sought you out. It's grace that started this. It's grace in the middle right now. It's not like grace starts it and then you take it from there. It's grace in the middle. The fact that you're still here and this wasn't a little fad in your life is the fact that God's grace is real and it's holding you in the middle. And it's God's grace in the end to push you through that you'll actually see him face to face. The Christian life is all of grace. So God gets this glory word because he's able to keep us from stumbling. But there's a second promise here. It says he's able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Can you, can you imagine that? Can you imagine standing before God's presence blameless? Nothing to hide. Nothing to cover up. Nothing to like explain away. Just blameless. Standing before the presence of God, blameless. You would think because of Bible Belt tradition, I've got I've to somehow work to make myself blameless. No, no, no. Remember, you don't present yourself. You get presented. <laughs> blameless. So here's what's amazing about this. Just go here with me. This promise that you will be presented before God's presence blameless is meant to capture your imagination. It's meant to capture your attentions. And it's one of the means by which God will use to keep you from stumbling. So like the first promise, he's able to keep you from stumbling, is actually supported by the second promise to present you blameless before his presence. The fact that that's going to happen is part of the means by which God's keeping you. Just to be held by like, oh my gosh, that's for me. He puts it on the table and shoves it across and says, take it. That's yours. Man. There's an illustration by one of my favorite preachers up in the Cleveland area. His name is Alistair Begg. He's a Presbyterian preacher. And he has the kind of preaching that makes even Presbyterians come alive, you know? Normally a drab group of people, but it's all of a sudden they're like in it with him, you know? And he illustrates what's going on here by talking about the thief on the cross. He says, think about this guy. He never went to a Bible study. He never was baptized. 
He's never a member of a church. He doesn't know anything about the high doctrines of the church, justification by faith or end times or election. He doesn't know any of this stuff. But he's the one that asked Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? So the illustration goes, like, a thief on the cross shows up in heaven. Sort of looking around like someone who shouldn't be there. Angel comes up and says, what are you doing here? I don't know. How did you get here? I don't, I don't know. Why should we let you in? He's just, angel's confused at this point. <laughs> Given a reply, he says, I have no idea. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. If there's any reply to those questions that starts with I, if there's any reply, well, because I had faith, because I believed, well, because I kind of kept up with some good efforts, because I was more this than that, it's insufficient. You don't present yourself, and if you could, you wouldn't present yourself blameless because you don't got that. You're presented before his presence blameless because the guy on the middle cross said you could come and his work on your behalf was so sufficient that it couldn't just present you, but it presents you blameless. Like what kind, this is a glory word. You see, this is a crescendo. This is like strike up the band. These are promises given to us. Keep you from stumbling. Present you before his presence because the man on the middle cross said I could come. And then lastly, it's a ministry of joy. So there's nothing in this passage that's about us. We're just recipients. So you have to ask the question, so if God's doing all this keeping work, and if God's making sure through Jesus that we're presented there blameless, like what's his demeanor as he's at work? Like what does God's face look like as he's busy? What's the look on God's face as he has to work over you? What's the attitude of the Father as he shows up over you? We actually don't have to try to go guess the answer. This passage tells us who is able to present you, or sorry, keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory Three words, with great joy. Can this just please buy back so much bad Bible Belt teaching for a second? This means that God doesn't have a disappointing scowl when he looks at you, Christian. Doesn't. This means that... <laughs> When God's got his keeping work sort of going in your life, he doesn't have his arms folded like, God, i got to keep this one. Good grief. It's like herding cats. The Father's arms aren't folded over you. He's not obligated. He's not obligated. Well... My son did this whole thing at the cross and the resurrection, and, you know, it was like whoever believes in him would get saved, and so I'm, I'm obligated to keep this one. Sort of part of the contract. 
John 3.16, for God so loved the world and he sent his son. And his son endured the cross, scorned its shame with great joy. You are the prize of the son's suffering. You're the prize of the son's suffering. He's not obligated. He's not inconvenienced by you. Do you know this? You're not an inconvenience to God. You keep coming with your requests. I must bother him. You keep coming with your requests. He's delighted because you're still praying. Can I do one more just so we're thorough here? (laughs) We need this to sink in, don't we? The Father isn't second-guessing you. On no level has he ever thought a second time about whether or not he should have given you mercy, grace, and peace. He says he carries out this ministry with great joy. With great joy. Other passages of scripture chime in here. Zephaniah 3, the prophet says, The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. This is God's demeanor. This is his countenance. This is his face. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. That's the Father's demeanor as he performs his life over you. You can't do loud singing except in the case of death metal. You can't do loud singing angry. It's a joyful thing. Psalm 32, verse 7. He says, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. Notice this. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The Father shouts to the Christian because of the work of the Son, the only Savior, You're free. You're free in my love. You're free with me. You're free with my grace. You're indwelt by my spirit. You've got my promises. I'm going to get you home. You're free. Yeah, but I'm stumbling. Yeah, but you won't ultimately stumble, and I'm going to get you here. This is a glory word, a doxology. And so this is the vision of the Christian life. There's dangers in false teaching. There's dangers in being pulled under by them. That's why he writes this book. But he explodes at the end with remember the vision of the Christian life. Remember who this is for. Now to him. I'll finish with this quote here. This vision will keep you running your race. Do you see Jesus? There he is. You're getting closer. You're closer today than you were yesterday. You're closer right now than you were when we started this church service. You're getting closer. Keep running. Keep fighting. Keep guarding. Because soon you will see him as he is. And then you will see his scarred hands and you will look into his majestic eyes and his lips will move. And they will say, well done. And he will place a crown on your head and on that day you will not regret the fighting. You will not regret the running. You will not regret the enduring for his name's sake. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence with joy. He does this. So quickly, three questions to wrap our time. 
hey, where are you being tempted to take an off-ramp? In the midst of a glory word like this, we've got to be honest, it doesn't always feel like glory in here. It oftentimes feels like a mosh pit in my chest. Impulses and temptations. Hey, where's the temptation for an off-ramp? The reason why it's good to ask a question like that is because this doxology says, okay, I see the off-ramp, but to the one who's able to keep me from stumbling, stay on the road. For others of you, where are you tempted to quit? You're not even looking for an off-ramp. Like I, I'm not interested in off-ramps. I'm just going to pull the e-brake on the road. Stop. Me too. The good news here is that we have to ask a question like that because that's a common experience in the Christian life. But this doxology comes to say, but remember, he's able to present you blameless before his presence. Don't quit. He's not quitting. Third question. Where are you tempted to despair? It's very real. A a glory word like this, if it's really full of glory, it's got to meet us in those dark places too. Where are you tempted to despair? Where are you tempted to go dark? This doxology meets us to saying, remember, the one who performs his keeping work over you does it with joy. You're not a bother to God. Don't despair today. Don't lose hope today. Don't go dark today. Because his smile remains a smile. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words that wrap up this book. These words are too wonderful for us. We would never have written them ourselves. We would never have chosen them for ourselves. But you offer these words to us. You offer these promises to us. You give us this glory word. And so, Father, I pray that you would encourage the tempted today. Would you comfort those in despair today? Would you remind us that your face isn't a scowl today? And Father, would you, would you be effective in us today? Win over us in your keeping work. We want to keep ourselves in your love. Would you please keep us from stumbling? We offer this prayer in the strong name of Jesus who wins this word for us. Amen.